Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Sponsored by the Law Office of Robert Bergman. Welcome to Plan Your Estate Radio with your host, San Jose Estate Planning Attorney Bob Bergman. Bob's been practicing law for over 30 years and is certified by the State Bar of California as a legal specialist in estate planning trust and probate law. Bob is here to help you set your house in order with valuable insights you can use today to prepare a better tomorrow for your loved ones. And now your host for Plan Your Estate Radio, Attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, good afternoon, Bay Area. Um, I hope you all had a good time if you listened to the show last uh, last Friday when I had two callers. I want to let you know I am opening up the show today. Two callers. Number is 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220, like the call numbers of KDOW. And uh, if you'd like to call in and talk with my engineer, Marco, you can uh, let him know you'd like to talk with me if you have a question. I'll be happy to take it on the air as long as it's something that I am qualified to answer. Uh, don't ask me who's going to win the Super Bowl, although I suspect uh, I have a pretty good idea who might win the Super Bowl. Don't ask me that question. I'm not a prognosticator of Super Bowl odds, so don't ask me about that. Um, continuing on in my um approach that I've taken on this show for coming up on two years now in March, which is kind of hard to believe I've been on the air that long, but uh, some of you are probably saying, when is he going to get off the air? I'm tired of listening to this guy. And others of you maybe just tuned in. You want to know who is this guy at the other end of the microphone? Well, I'm estate planning attorney, Bob Bergman. I practice in San Jose, California as an estate planning attorney. I'm coming up the end of this year, I'll have been 40 years in the practice of law, which means that uh, I went to law school with Moses. And um, and uh, by the way, he graduated ahead of me, a lot brighter than me. And, uh, and I um, practice exclusively in estate planning. I'm actually uh, board certified by the State Bar Board of Legal Specialization in estate planning, trust, and probate law. I focus my practice primarily on living trust planning, and uh, some trust administration after someone has died who had a trust. I do very limited amount of probate administration, only um, as an accommodation to an existing client or to, uh, if I'm doing other work for a family, I may do a probate administration for them. And I do a lot of work in the courts with uh, two types of court petitions involving trusts, one called the Hegstat petition, which is used to gather assets into a trust after someone has died when they either should have already been in the trust or they're somehow payable to someone's estate or held in their individual name at death. And then I also do a trust modification petition under the probate code section 15403 or section 15409. 
and those are done to modify otherwise irrevocable, unchangeable trusts and actually to amend them and modify them or reform them or in some cases even terminate them completely uh, as long as all interested parties get together and agree that this is a good thing. So those are the kinds of things I do as an estate planning attorney. Don't call me up and ask me questions about real estate or divorce or immigration or DUI or uh, anything like that. That is not what I do. Amazingly enough, I do get a lot of calls from people asking me questions about things that I am not uh, properly equipped to answer. Um, In my experience as an attorney, I've had a lot of people think that because someone is an attorney, that means they know the answer to every single question about every single area of the law. That's just not true. If an attorney pretends that they can answer any question about any part of the law, they're either a complete idiot or they're just plain lying to you. And I'll say that right now. So moving on and doing uh, what I've been doing for these past almost two years now, I'm going to continue on with questions and comments. These are actual situations facing people around the state of California. And I present the situation. If you're just tuning in, I present the situation. And then I do a little legal analysis, excuse me, including suggestions that I might make to these people if they came into my office and asked me. So here, here's the first one out of Sacramento. What will happen to a special needs trust that has been set up for a beneficiary that does not have special needs? So this person said, on my mother's death, whatever I inherit will go into a special needs trust with me as beneficiary and my sister as trustee. I do receive social security disability but I do not, in my opinion, have special needs. What is the likely outcome? Can the trust ever be dissolved or converted to another trust? This is an excellent question. Let me explain first that Social Security disability is basically a payment. um, That's basically an insurance payment that you would receive if you become disabled and can no longer work. It doesn't mean you're mentally disabled. It doesn't mean that you're physically disabled, other than maybe you can't do some physical work. But it doesn't really classify you as a special needs person unless you have other indicators that you are a special needs person. Um, So Social Security disability, you can get Social Security disability payments from the government and be a millionaire. Um, It's just that if you uh, can no longer do your chosen work and you had disability insurance that you were paying into, um, that is basically your uh, SSDI, if you're paying that to the federal government, well, that basically means if you can no longer do your work, you can apply for Social Security disability income. It is not needs-based. It's not based on you being, um, being a special needs person at all, although many people may end up as a special needs person because of an injury or uh, or an accident while they're working. So in this case, this person could potentially petition the court along with the sister agreeing 
and petitioned the court to change this from a special needs trust maybe to uh, a lifetime trust, what I call the castle trust, so it could still be available for the person to receive funds beyond kind of um, just what they might get from government benefits, um, and then also still have asset protection for the inheritance. Now, that would involve going to court and convincing a court that the special needs trust was not really needed and that maybe the mother uh, misunderstood when she set it up and thought because her son was getting disability income from Social Security that that meant he was a special needs person. That being said, the court is going to not just overturn something like this um, just because the beneficiary and the trustee think it's a good idea. The court will weigh all of the options and see if there's a really good reason why uh, the special needs trust should stay in effect. So that's not really a done deal uh, one way or the other. Okay, now here's the situation. My parents have passed. My brother and I are beneficiaries. My parents stated they want each of five grandchildren to receive $100,000 each. But one of the grandchildren passed away after the will was made. Who receives that grandchild's money? Well, first of all, we have to say, uh, does it say to the grandchildren or their descendants? Or does it say anything in there about a lapse of the gift if the grandchild didn't survive? In this case, it says my brother wants it. I think the grandchildren remaining to split it. It depends completely on the language in the trust or will itself, how that share will be distributed, or even if that share for the deceased grandchild is created at all. So we're coming up on the end of the first segment today. If you'd like to call in, it's 800-516-1220. I am taking calls today on this Friday afternoon. But if you just want to listen to more questions and comments, I'll be back after the break. This is estate planning attorney Bob Bergman. Talk with you then. This is Plan Your Estate Radio with San Jose estate planning attorney Bob Bergman on AM 1220 KDOW. Hi, welcome back. Uh, I am taking calls today. The number is 800-516-1220 if you'd like to call in and ask me a question. If if you're nervous about getting on the air and talking uh, out uh, so that other people can hear you, you can also email me at radio, R-A-D-I-O, at lawbob, L-A-W-B-O-B dot com. And uh, and I'm going to be checking that regularly throughout the show. So if you have a question you want to ask that way, you could certainly do that, and I could answer that on the air for you. So um, let's take a look here. Uh, Here we go. All right. Um, Okay, here is an interesting one out of Southern California. Uh, This person asked, if I get married in Vegas, do I have any legal rights to my partner's asset in case he passes? I don't want to get married in front of the family, and I've rented an apartment, and I want it to be under my name. Not sure what that has to do with anything. But if I get married in Vegas, if my spouse passes away, God forbid, do I have any legal rights to his assets, his house, 
It's under his name, but he lives there with mom and sisters. Okay, we've been together for six years. Well, first of all, I'd say, have you been together for six years if you have your own apartment and he lives in a house with his mom and sisters? I don't know if you're actually together, but the deal is that if you actually get married with this person and then he dies in the absence of some kind of an agreement that you had with him in writing about what happens with his property, then you as a surviving spouse would be entitled to a statutory share of the property Um and interestingly enough, if he um, if he has no children, uh, you could end up being entitled to 100% of his separate property because it is his separate property. Um, that is kind of how the law would work in this state. Uh, the question is, would this person actually marry you if they knew that you'd end up potentially with everything and then mom and his sisters might have to get booted out of the house. Probably not. Certainly, if he came in and asked me, I'd say, you know, you might want to consider putting things in trust and then making provision perhaps for your new wife to uh, live in the property <clears throat> or maybe to have the property sold um, and then proceeds divided between your new spouse and your mom and your sisters. But that sounds... Uh, uh, and I would say, of course, the person you marry in Vegas has to be this person you're referring to. You can't just go get married in Vegas. <laughs> you have to marry the right person for that to work at all. All right. Now, here is kind of a similar question. It says, uh, I've been married 33 years with my spouse, and I live in a house that was in a trust with my mother-in-law as the title holder of the property. Well, she died and left the house in a trust for my spouse. He says he doesn't have to split the house with me if we get divorced. Is this true even after 33 years of marriage and over 20 years in the house? Well, first of all, as long as you were living there when, with your mother-in-law as the owner of the property, you would not have any claim, and certainly your spouse would not have any claim because he doesn't own anything yet. Now that it's in a trust for him, depending on the terms of the trust, it may say it is just for him. And the short answer is, as long as he doesn't do anything to somehow mix the ownership of the house into the marriage, well, then, yes, he's right. If you get divorced from, from your spouse, he doesn't have to split the house at all because it's his house. It came from his mother. It's his separate property. So it doesn't matter if you've been married 33 years. It doesn't matter if you've been living in the house for 20 years. And, you know, you might have been paying rent. But if you weren't, you were just getting a free ride from your mother-in-law letting you live in the house. I'd be pretty grateful for that. But the idea that you're somehow going to get some of the house if you get divorced, probably not unless there's more things that happened since your spouse ended up with the house put in a trust by his mother, your mother-in-law. Now, here's kind of a complex question, and I hope I don't trip it up um, a lot here. This is someone who's thinking about purchasing a duplex 
living in one side and renting out the other side for income or a single-family home big enough to rent out the main part for income and keep a suite with private entrance for primary residents. If I end up in long-term care and need help from Medi-Cal, I'd like to ensure the home will be protected from Medi-Cal seeking reimbursement from my estate after I die. The deed would be in the name of my living trust. Thank you. Well, starting first, uh, if you have a property that is your principal residence, you can certainly put it into a living trust and not have it subject to recovery by the state for any monies paid for Medi-Cal. However, if you're earning income from part of that property that is your personal residence, then you have to declare that income in order to determine eligibility for Medi-Cal. Now, it would have to be extremely high for you to be ineligible for Medi-Cal, but if you did go into a nursing home, the state's going to basically direct virtually all of that income to be turned over to the nursing home you went to. You'll be allowed to keep $35 uh, for personal care items. That's $35 per month, but the rest of the income would be directed to go to the nursing home. So if if you're looking at having income without a nursing home, that's not a bad idea. At the same time, just be aware that although you may be able to avoid estate recovery, the income is going to end up going to your care if you end up in a nursing home. <clears throat> okay, uh, let's see. We'll skip that one. And let's see... Okay. Ooh. All right. Here's one. If my brother's living with my mother and is a heroin addict, she dies without a will. How do I remove him before he sells anything? I'm her daughter and he did this to my grandmother when she died. So apparently grandma had all of her stuff sold by heroin addict brother. Um, If she dies without a will, there's really no way to remove him unless you go in and, and you apply to be the administrator of mom's estate that could take two or three months then you would have the right to have him evicted in the meantime he's probably sold everything except maybe including the fixtures in the property so there's no real way to stop this maybe see if you can get mom to throw your brother out of the house before she dies so you don't have to deal with that all right we're coming up on the end of the second segment of the show today and um When we come back after the break, I will be continuing with more questions and comments. You can always call me at 800-516-1220. But barring anybody calling in today, I will continue with more questions and comments from around the state of California. So when we come back after the break, this is estate planning attorney Bob Bergman, host of Plan Your Estate Radio. And we'll be back after these commercials. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back. I am taking calls today, 800-516-1220, if you'd like to call in. Uh, Barring that, I'll continue on with more questions and comments from around the state of California. So, um, 
Here's a situation out of uh, my backyard here, here in Santa Clara County. Person says, I'm a sole beneficiary to a property in an irrevocable trust. Now, let's pause right there. Sole beneficiary. That means what? There's no other beneficiary to this property. My sister is the trustee. The trust states I may live in the house that was left for me, but my sister makes me live in the garage without adequate heat or kitchen and allows her daughter to live upstairs. Should I have the right to live upstairs in the home I raise my children in? (laughs) More than that, you have a right to tell your sister to move her daughter out of your house. If the house was left for you as the sole beneficiary and your sister's the trustee, she's supposed to be handling that property for your exclusive sole benefit. Her daughter has no business living in the house without your permission, and she can't make you live in the garage without heat or kitchen privileges. The sister needs to be removed as the trustee and some competent trustee put in place that's actually going to carry out the terms of this trust. I would advise this person that they need to go and talk with an attorney that does estate litigation who can then write a letter to the sister saying, it is hereby demanded that you follow the terms of the trust, that you remove your daughter from the property, that you permit the beneficiary to occupy the property, and that you stop pulling this garbage. And that's pretty much what my response would be there. Barring that, ask the court to remove the sister as the trustee and have a different trustee put in place who is going to do what was intended, which is have this property there for the use of the sole beneficiary, which is the person that posted the question. Do beneficiaries have the right to see a copy of a revocable trust? My sister, as trustee, facilitated a change to my mother's trust a month after a previous trust was signed. I have a copy of the first trust, but my sister will not provide a copy of the second trust where she made changes to the distribution of the estate to the beneficiaries. She says I don't have a right to see it. Is this correct? That is correct. A beneficiary who is only a contingent beneficiary, meaning They'll only inherit if they're alive when the person dies. They don't have a right to see a revocable trust. However, if this person has a belief that the sister was exercising undue influence over the mother to make changes to the beneficiary distributions, um, basically through fraud, duress, menace, meaning threatening, or, uh, or any other kind of coercion, that's inappropriate, well, then if the mother is a senior, then that could be elder financial abuse. And the only way to kind of smoke this out would be to file a complaint with Adult Protective Services, in this case in Sacramento County, and say, I think that my sister is taking advantage of my mother. And she uh, induced her to make changes to her estate plan um, a month after She had already signed a trust, and I think uh, maybe my mother is not competent. 
Maybe she is mentally incompetent. Maybe she is being um, pressured by the sister to make these changes. And those things are not appropriate behavior. Could lead to the sister being removed as the trustee. So that would be the situation there. Okay, out of San Francisco. Can you move a house with a first mortgage on it into an irrevocable trust in California? Or does the mortgage have to be paid off first? The home was in a joint living trust but still has a mortgage, and we want to move it into an irrevocable trust. Will this protect against creditors? Well, there's a number of different um, questions in there. The first one, if you move a house any with a mortgage on it into an irrevocable trust, that is a change of ownership as far as a lender is concerned. If the lender finds out you did that, there is probably a due-on-sale or transfer provision in the mortgage that would permit the lender to call in the loan, meaning demand that the loan be paid off now because the ownership of the property has literally changed from individuals to now an irrevocable trust. So that's the first part. I would say, yes, the mortgage has to be paid off if you don't want the lender calling the mortgage and potentially forcing the sale of the property after it's been transferred into the irrevocable trust. Now, the second question is, will this protect against creditors? Well, if it's transferred into an irrevocable trust that has different beneficiaries than the people who originally own the property, then it could protect, depending on the way it's drafted, it could protect against the creditors of those beneficiaries going after that house that's in the irrevocable trust. It's not going to protect against the creditors of the people who originally owned the house and transferred it into the irrevocable trust um, if they intend to retain income or other interests in that property. Um, the transfer into an irrevocable trust has to be complete. It has to be uh, no ownership interest retained by the people who set up that trust. There have to be other beneficiaries than them. They can't be the beneficiaries of that trust. Otherwise, it's what's called a self-settled trust. And a self-settled trust is a trust you set up with your own property for your own benefit. <clears throat> Those kinds of trusts do not have any asset protection against creditors' claims. So the answer is it could protect against creditors, but probably not the creditors of the people who set up the trust and originally own the property. Only the people who are the beneficiaries of that irrevocable trust not the original owners, could have asset protection from creditors. Now, here's when I read this and I just kind of cringe. <clears throat> person asked, I have my mother's durable power of attorney and I'm being accused of elder abuse because I used her money after taking ownership of her bank account. Um, is it true or legal for me to take ownership of her bank account if I have power of attorney. Well, let's unpack that. If the mother granted a durable power of attorney to the son over a bank account, then yes, that would include the power to take all the money in the bank account and put it in your own bank account because you have the authority to do that. 
The different question is, was that done for the purpose of helping out mom, who is an elder, to handle things for her? And then if you took mom's money and used it for yourself, made it your own money, yeah, that's probably elder financial abuse because having the power and authority over a bank account to sign for mom does not include the right to take mom's property and use it for yourself. You may have the power to do that, but you probably do not have the legal right to do that. And that's what this person's talking about. So if they took mom's money and just started using it for themselves because they had power of attorney, that is bad news. And that probably is financial elder abuse. And this person will probably be removed with the authority of the power of attorney. And the county may very well go after that person for reimbursement for the monies taken from the mom to return it back to the mom uh, give her her money back, in other words, and could end up in serious criminal trouble as well. If it's determined that he he or she knew uh, I really wasn't entitled to the money, I took it anyway, that's basically embezzlement, and that can be considered a crime as well. It's typically, with the amount involved, probably a felony. So that could be a very serious matter. So if you have authority as a power of attorney over someone's account. It doesn't mean it's your money. It means they've given you the power to handle things for them, pay their bills, get cash out of the bank to give to them, um, handle their financial affairs, not take the money and put it in your own pocket. The power of attorney will give you the power to do that, but that doesn't mean you have the right to do that. Just like if you stick a gun at someone's face, you have the power to do that, but you may not have the right to do that. That may be assault. Um, If you're not defending yourself, if you're sticking them up, you don't have the right to stick that gun in their face. You may shoot a person. You may have the right to do that in self-defense. You may not have a right to do that if you're just shooting them because you're robbing from them or you just decided, I don't like you, and you decide to shoot them. So power and the right to do something are different things, and they often go together. So we're coming up on the end of the third segment of the show today. Uh, The number, if you want to call in, I can probably take one call in the fourth segment if someone calls in. It's 800-516-1220. You can also email me at radio at lawbob.com. If you'd like to book a consultation, go to lawbob.com and you can find the book and estate planning consultation link right there that will allow you to book a consultation right through my online calendar and I'd be happy to meet with you. So when we come back after the break, we'll finish up the show with more questions and comments from around the state of California. Uh, Until after the break, this is estate planning attorney Bob Bergman, host of Plan Your Estate Radio. We'll talk with you after the break. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio. Once again, your host, estate planning trust and probate law specialist, attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back. I'm going to finish up the show today with um, maybe four or five other questions and comments, and then we'll... We'll call it a day until next Friday. 
this one comes out of uh, San Jose, uh, my own town right here. Uh, does a mortgage need to be paid off or transferred to us before probate closes, or can we continue to make payments in Dad's name? All right. Dad passed away with a will but no trust. We've paid all his other debt off but want to keep the house. Can we close probate and keep the mortgage in Dad's name to avoid more costly fees? Okay, well, first of all, I would ask the question, how did you open probate without notifying the lender on Dad's property that he had died? Um, the, the lender on the property is a creditor and legally has to be notified that the person died. Uh, all creditors have to be notified so that they can file claims. Uh, so presumably they already know that dad died. Um, keeping the mortgage in dad's name doesn't really do anything uh, except mean that uh, whoever owns the property um, may not be able to actually write off the interest on the mortgage because they're not on the mortgage. Uh, they're on the property, so that's okay. But um, really, the the house should be refinanced because I think the lender could actually call the loan because there's been a change in ownership and the original borrower, dad, is no longer the borrower on the property. Now it is um, presumably the children. It says we, so I'm assuming that's maybe multiple children inheriting the property. Um, so... Uh, they should consider, if they're going to keep the property, they should consider refinancing, paying off that old mortgage and getting a new mortgage uh, so that the old mortgage is not called. I will say this, that if the old mortgage has a very high interest rate compared to today, then the lender, as a matter of practicality, is not really going to call in that loan because if they're getting 5% on the money, why would they call in the loan so they can turn around and loan it back out at 2.9 or 3%? No, they'll happy to get the 5% on that loan, so they probably won't call it. The family, on the other hand, if they're paying 5% interest on that loan, they might want to consider refinancing the loan to drop the interest rate. We have some very low interest rates relative to historic interest rates. I mean, I can remember my first house I ever owned I had a loan, and it had 13% interest on the loan. Oh, yes, some of you out there, you remember those days uh, back when we had 13% interest on the loan, uh, back when you were getting um, more, you know, 5% on your savings account, and you could get CDs that might be paying you 8 9 or 10% interest on a certificate of deposit. Those days are long gone. I doubt we'll ever see those again. But still, um, they might want to refinance this loan because if the lender doesn't call the loan, it's probably because they're paying a higher interest rate than the going interest rate right now. Okay, here. Dad would like me to represent him when dealing with matters related to his life insurance. What are the benefits of him transferring ownership of his life insurance to me? versus being his power of attorney or having a power of attorney over it. I don't know if there's any particular benefits of that um, to transfer ownership of the life insurance. 
other than that would mean that if there's still payments being made, you would have to start making those payments. Presumably, you are also the beneficiary of the life insurance. So being the owner and the beneficiary, you know, that's okay. You can own the policy on dad's life. I don't know about any particular benefits doing that. Now, having a general power of attorney, can I still represent him regarding his life insurance? Well, yes, you can, but probably not including changing the beneficiary, but making sure that the premium payments are made and and things like that. In addition, having the general power of attorney, can I make decisions about his health? Answer, no. You need an advanced health care directive or a health care power of attorney to make decisions about someone's health. Financial powers of attorney and health care powers of attorney are different. There are some states where you can do a combined power of attorney that covers both of those issues, but the state of California is not one of those states. Here, there would be a general power of attorney for financial matters and then a health care power of attorney or advanced health care directive here in California to deal with health matters. This person also want to know if I sign the forms to become his general power of attorney, well, meaning if dad signs the forms, when do the forms expire? Well, they expire if they have an expiration date. It will be stated in the power of attorney. But in general, they will not expire at all as long as the person is still alive um, and has not revoked the power of attorney. That being said, there are some places like banks and others that might look at an older power of attorney and say, it's stale, we want a new one executed, which, of course, probably is not possible if the person's now incapacitated. So that's it for this week. Um, Feel free to visit my website at lawbob.com. There's a lot of information there. Uh, I'm not doing Living Trust seminars right now, but you can always watch an older version of my seminar at the uh, law offices of Robert P. Bergman on uh, YouTube. And until next week, this is estate planning attorney Bob Bergman, host of Plan Your State Radio. I hope you have a great weekend. So until next Friday, goodbye. You've been listening to Plan Your Estate Radio with estate planning attorney Bob Bergman. For more information on today's program or to schedule a consultation, visit lawbob.com, where you'll also find information on his upcoming estate planning seminars. L-A-W-B-O-B, lawbob.com. Or call his office in San Jose, 408-247-0444. That's 408-247-0444. And be sure to tune in next week for more Plan Your Estate Radio. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of this station and are for informational purposes only and should not be construed to be legal, financial, or tax advice. Seek appropriate legal advice regarding your particular situation. Attorney Bob Bergman does not offer any guarantees with regard to the outcome of your legal matter. Prior results in other cases do not guarantee a similar outcome in your case. All rights reserved.